Well, welcome everybody to the round table. Um, again, small group, so, um, and we're upstairs on the fifth floor, so not everybody can find us. Um, but thank you so much for being here. Uh, we have a great, um, I'm accompanied by two great gentlemen here. Uh, one of our panel members had to take off. Uh, there was a little snafu on scheduling, um, but we're glad you're here. Uh, our topic today is uh, making telehealth a strategic asset uh, to achieve efficiency in organizations. So I put up there just kind of a, a cool definition I found online of efficiency, and it really is kind of the, the nexus of economics and business, um, really as the allocation of scarce resources that maximizes the achievement of aims. And I think when you read that, you often think of healthcare. Uh, there's a scarcity of physicians, there's a scarcity of access, um, and so that's how telehealth can be such a benefit. Um, so with that, um, we'll kind of get into our agenda uh, today. We do just have 30 minutes. Um, so here's our uh, panel. Uh, Dr. Migliori had to catch a uh, flight back to the West Coast. Um, we were originally scheduled for 1 o'clock, and then they moved us a little bit. Um, <clears throat> So uh, welcome uh, Jamie, CEO and co-founder of Cloudbreak, uh, a leading unified telemedicine company currently performing over 1 million encounters annually in almost 1,000 hospitals. Uh, Cloudbreak's mission is to humanize healthcare. Uh, we're so glad you're here. Jamie, thank you. Uh, and uh, John Madison, Assistant Med Director uh, and the Chief Health Information Officer for Kaiser Permanente and faculty at Singularity University uh, with Kaiser Permanente. Um, so glad you're here. Transformative legend in the industry. So thank you so much for being here. Um, and with that, we, ju I just, we put five questions together that really we all kind of felt um, identified telehealth as a strategic asset. and. We won't just answer these. We'll kind of really just float it all around the room. Um, and these are just meant as guides. Uh, but the first question is, what makes telehealth a strategic asset to achieve efficiency in your organization? I'll kind of turn it over to, if you don't mind. Sure. So um, because we're uh, moving into a roundtable type of forum, so what I hope that we can do is, after our responses, open it up to you, you know, point by point, rather than talking at you and waiting to the end, so much more of a discussion format. Um, so I'll just say that... Uh, there he is. Come on. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> so um, we, we've... A, We've been a the original value-based organization. I mean, I, that's not a that's not an exaggerated claim. Um, uh, Sidney Garfield, uh, the founding physician, I like to refer to as the Steve Jobs of healthcare. I mean, he invented value-based healthcare before any long before any of us were born. Um, he published his vision of integrated system supporting integrated delivery in Scientific American in 1970. He'd been talking about it for 10 years before that. So he was one of these folks who was just like decades ahead of his time. And so we stand on his shoulders. Um, and it's really easy for people to get heady inside our organization because we do things in a way that's now viewed as the model of how to do things, not because of anything any of us have done, it's because of a giant visionary that founded the organization, the likes of which, has not, in my humble opinion, has not been seen again since him. Um, 
And so it becomes really easy for us to not think about how do we transition from a, a fee-for-service to a value-based system, but how do we amplify the virtues of a value-based system and integrating virtual care uh, and almost anything in the digital health space is way easier for us because of this incredible visionary, Sidney Garfield. And so that's why every single digital startup in the world really wants to get a toehold in our organization because it just makes it easy to show the virtue of a value-based product and a value-based organization. And telehealth is not only not an exception to that, but it's sort of the poster child of how you can achieve that. Because we don't have to, so I'm on the AMA committee that's making up the new CPT codes for telemedicine. Um, and I have to say it's um, not talking out of school because we talk about this inside the committee, but um, they have a set of constraints around them with CPT codes that are really based upon a fee-for-service model. And so they're trying to help physician practices in the fee for, locked in the fee-for-service world temporarily make the transition and not go out of business while they cannibalize their billable hours with unbillable hours doing telemedicine. But it has to follow the fee-for-service model. And I'm sort of the token value-based member of that committee and just periodically, I have to be careful not to say it too often, but periodically say, oh, and remember there's this value-based healthcare thing going on um, in the country. And so, um, I totally support everything they're doing. I support the I understand the constraints that, that CPT codes put on the process. But if you can imagine the complexity of our discussions about how do we ensure that docs don't go out of business because we want them to use more and more and more virtual care as opposed to face-to-face -face care, um, it's remarkable. I mean, even in our organization, this does not influence us, I, I have to say. But we lose money because we get a copay from so many of our high deductible plans for in-person visits that we don't collect for our virtual visits. So we're actually um, shooting ourselves in the foot, not to the extent that fee-for-service is, but to some extent. Um, we can afford to do that because our entire commitment has been our culture and our DNA is value-based care, not fee-for-service care. So with that kind of frame of reference for who we are and the opportunity we have and the constraints that we have, but which are greatly amplified in the fee-for-service world, the way that I, I lead our telehealth system, uh, project and remote monitoring projects um, uh, nationwide for the company. and. Um, the thing that I've insisted on from the very beginning is that just like um, we were fortunate to have some of the pioneers in evidence-based medicine guide us down that path to evidence-based medicine, I wanted to ensure that we had evidence-based virtual medicine as well. And so there's two components of that. The first component is around the evidence basis of patient satisfaction. So we want to know in general, what kind of communication modality a patient prefers. Um, and some people just, you know, want everything on uh, Instagram, other people want everything on text, other people want everything on Facebook. Obviously, we don't do this with Facebook. Um, and we almost did, um, but we pulled that project. Um, 
we, uh, some can have their needs met with email, some can have their needs met with a phone call, chat session, video visit, uh, advice nurse, call center, physician call center, uh, or scheduled or ad hoc video visit. So we've got this panoply of communication modalities to shift from face-to-face -face care to virtual care. And we, we want to satisfy our members for convenience at the same time we protect their safety. So the first thing is what do they prefer co for convenience? And that's a whole evidence basis that we're working on right now. The other evidence basis is since we, we've been fully automated for so long now um, that everything, everything is digital. I mean, it's just paper forms are like really rare. There's, there's still artifacts where paper's best. Um, and after visit summary, for example, first you go to the lab, then you go to x-ray, then, then you see the, uh, uh, cardiologists, whatever, um, can help people wayfind after an encounter um, if, if they're not really comfortable with their smartphone navigation. And so, but in general, we're, we're really paperless. So we can look at everything we know about that individual, and we have a really big natural language processing team to extract not just the discrete data, but the text and the context of encounters. And then we have a current complaint sitting on top of this information base. So the second source of evidence-based practice for virtual care is if someone is 27 years old, perfectly healthy, no meds, no known diseases, and they're having chest pain, and they want to do a chat session, that's probably okay as a starter, but if someone who's 65 smokes two packs a day, has diabetes and hypertension, wants a chat session for chest pain, that's just not okay. And so those exceptions to the rule of letting members decide for themselves which modality is okay are not common. Most people have common sense. Most people will generally do the right thing, but we have all the liability and they have everything to lose if they choose a chat session when they're having an MI. Um, and so we have to develop those evidence bases independently. One is patient preference, the other is um, appropriate level of service. And so what we've done is we've instrumented all of our channels of virtual care in such a way that we can accomplish um, those goals of merging those two evidence bases so that we provide the most convenient, most preferred care within the bounds of patient safety, within the bounds of what we know about the individual, so that we can do smart routing, intelligent routing of people to the right modality, and that we can you know, upshift or downshift in, in the communication stack. So someone's in a chat session and they're 17 and it sounds like an MI, you know, they could have Prince Metal's angina, they could have a thrombotic, a genetic thrombotic disorder that's causing an MI at the age of 17. So that's rare, um, but we can, we can have warm handoffs from one modality to the other. So the question was, how does it achieve efficiency in your organization? If people don't have to come in, they don't need a parking space, they don't need a check-in clerk, they don't need any of the other uh, infrastructural services associated with a face-to-face visit. That's pretty friggin' obvious. Um, if they can get um, equivalent care outside of a face-to-face -face visit, then any of these other modalities um, can help them. And I would, I would have to say from our experience, and I just pulled up one of our uh, PowerPoints so I could give you some actual numbers. 
Um, I think we're doing about four to 5,000 video visits a month now. We're up to 103,000 total. Um, we have about 6,000 people enrolled in remote monitoring, and that's not taken off as fast as we would like because we're trying to have a single platform. Um, and then we have 83,000 people getting online physical therapy. So uh, just as examples of the virtual care that we offer today, um, the efficiency is incredible because these people don't have to come in. We're putting the controls in place to make it safe. And we have a whole new project called eVisits um, where we have uh, branch logic forms that allow people to self-treat um, and get triaged into one of the other modalities as appropriate. So we're at eVisit to pre-visit um, to uh, the, the, the whole array. And what we're trying to offer is the highest, safest value for the individual uh, that's most convenient for them and doing it with an evidence basis. And I have to tell you that your intuition about what makes sense and what doesn't make sense um, is not nearly as good as the data because we've had a lot of surprises with the data in terms of what works and what doesn't work. Um, as one example, we're struggling right now with cough, cold, flu in terms of being able to differentiate somebody who needs to come in from somebody who can just self-triage and take care of themselves because you have to err on the side of safety and the differentiators in that uh, clinical syndrome are really difficult. So I'll stop there and hand it over to Jamie and let him add it. Thank you, John. Um, the definition of efficiency for us, and first of all, our company is about making hospitals more efficient, not necessarily ourselves. So we're an enablement platform. We believe that um, you know telemedicine is there to enhance patients' existing continuum of care, not create a new one. Um, and so when we think about efficiency, it's really about speeding the time to high quality care. Right. At its core, that's what it is for us. Hospitals have limited real estate, limited number of physicians. And so how do we get it so that in a very high quality way, in the same way a restaurant turns tables, they can turn their beds, but with no degradation of quality. Um, so that's a key part of that. And when we think about what makes people more efficient, the most efficient they can be, it's communication. You know, when you, how do we get the patient to the right modality of care? And that's one of the areas where healthcare could save billions and billions of dollars is let's try and match cost to acuity. So in terms of efficiency, telemedicine plays a huge role in helping do that as an initial triage tool. And I hate reading these articles that you see um, from various magazines where it's like, telehealth isn't being adopted across the country. You know, that really depends on what your definition of telehealth is. You have a health system to my left who is doing more telehealth visits than they're doing in-person visits. Um, you know, we have e-consult like telestroke, telepsychiatry, and kind of that B2B side of telemedicine, which is saving lives every day and making people a lot more efficient and allowing them to remain in their community, save money in terms of travel costs. The uh, VA came out with their study that basically said, and they have to reimburse the vets for travel. They saved $63,000 over the life of, of you know, for, for over a five-year period in terms of just travel alone for these patients. So when we think about it, you know, telemedicine enabling that communication, help get the patient to the right place at the right time um, and do it effectively. And what our company was really founded on was doing video medical interpreting. So for us, it was about what do we do with these really challenging patient populations who are limited English proficient or deaf and hard of hearing. And we were the first people in the country to actually integrate that with an existing telemedicine platform. We're doing 90,000 plus encounters a month include now telepsychiatry and telestroke because I think we heard Iris 
speak earlier about the inefficiency that came from having multiple different point solutions in your hospital. And so we actually pioneered unified telemedicine, bringing all the specialties together on a single platform. I should actually say Kaiser pioneered that, and then we kind of followed suit, um, because that is what makes the most sense. Being able to get a patient's care continuum on a single call is the most efficient way to practice medicine. So for us, it's about, again, speeding the time to high quality care. Yeah, I think both uh, both of you mentioned different things uh, along the lines of convenience, and that's where I see a lot of health systems, providers, the use cases, when the use cases and the organizations really understand the convenience and the kind of innovative flexibility that telehealth and the, as a platform and a tool can give them, then the efficiency uh, can really be endless. And I think that's, you know, Kaiser and John and everything that they're doing are a perfect example where, you know, depending on the use case, there are different use cases, different platforms, different providers using it for different things. Um, and it's all around an efficiency kind of cornerstone of, of where is the efficiency. And it's going to be a little bit different uh, for each thing. And that's similar to you, Jamie, that's where I get a little bit frustrated uh, reading the headlines here and there. And it, you know, the vast majority of the market does kind of uh, define telehealth as this very narrow, direct to consumer, urgent care only uh, kind of uh, way. So when you apply it other ways, it, the efficiency is there. And one thing I'll just add is, uh, Jamie mentioned reduced travel. Um, I was just keynoting a conference in the Netherlands with the health ministry from 30 countries, and um, a African-American looking man, turned out I found out later he's from Kenya, asked me, you know, all this digital health stuff is really cool, John, but that doesn't help us at all with people who are dying of, of uh, contaminated water. And my response to him was, I'm more worried about contaminated water and global warming than I am about the prevalence of digital health adoption. Uh, and I had a great follow-up conversation with him. It turns out that he's like the leading innovator in the world for the 17 strategic development goals of the United Nations. He has 17 innovation centers in Kenya, and he's going to be setting up 17 at the request of Stanford on the Stanford campus to address each of those goals. And the reason I digress that far is to come back to Jamie's comment and to amplify it. Um, we need to think of everything we do. Global warming, I think, is a bigger threat to health than anything else right now, more so than diabetes, more so than obesity, more so than any of the other uh, uh, disorders of lifestyle, because if we have a couple hundred million people who are homeless refugees, um, they will make today look like a picnic. So reducing travel time, everything we do in healthcare has to also incorporate um, a reduced carbon footprint. And healthcare is really, really terrible with our carbon footprint. And so, to the extent that if we were fully scaled nationwide, we could save probably hundreds of millions of tons of carbon dioxide released in the atmosphere a year. Um, and given that I believe that that is a far more compelling problem for us to address among the 17 SDGs, um, I, th I think that's potentially the greatest contribution. This is kind of hyperbolic sounding, but I think that may be, end up being the greatest contribution of virtual care, is cutting down carbon emissions and, and achieving the same level of care. Um, so why don't we open up to questions? Yeah, on completely this agree. Yeah, let me, let me pass the mic. I guess my question would be back to you. Um, so then, in, if that's the case, and that's sort of how you're perceiving the importance of reducing the global footprint, do you think then the onus is back on the large provider systems to um, 
disincentivize people from coming in. And I'll give an example. So I'm from Kansas City, and uh, one of our large health systems, St. Luke's, is continually building different emergency care clinics, different patient clinics, specialty clinics, and the whole impetus is bring more people into the facility. Um, and so I, I sort of see a bit of a paradox, although I agree with you in theory, that reducing the carbon footprint is essential. Um, it seems like doublespeak, though, sometimes from large provider organizations who are, you know, building massive additions onto their facilities. Yeah, so I think you can make a great analogy to coding and virtual care. So there's upcoding, which is widely practiced in the fee-for-service industry, and there's right coding, which is what we do. I built the team that does all our NLP, and the principle was make sure the clinician captures everything relevant to that based upon the science of medicine and the presenting complaint. So they ask everything relevant, and they do every physical exam relevant to that complaint, but nothing more, nothing less, nothing more, so that you get right treatment and as a derivative right coding. In the same way, virtual care should be based on an evidence basis, and that's why I started with a, the whole foundation of an evidence-based approach. So if we can show that it's as safe or safer, and more convenient and preferred, then we're gonna push hard on the virtual care. No less, no more. I think where I'm really concerned about the CPT code legacy is that if someone can crank out you know, more and more cha-chings with virtual visits than they could by face-to-face -face visits, we will see the reverse financial incentives where there will be the incentives towards virtual care when it should be face-to-face -face and people will die um, because things happen quickly when someone's having an MI or a stroke um, or an asthma um, exacerbation. So I think it's, you're, you're, you're absolutely correct to call that out because we've seen that before, the whole opioid crisis right now was started by federal policy. We were, I was forced to do 10 hours of CME every year, several years in a row, to push narcotics because there was a concern we weren't treating people well enough with drugs, with, with uh, pain relief. And now we're going the exact, now we have the opioid crisis, and once again, the federal regulations are overreacting. And over, uh, there are docs who should be giving narcotics now who won't, because the onus is so great. So they've, 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 they've and different people, but nevertheless over-regulation, uh, and I'm not a Trump supporter, um, but I do believe we have over-regulation across many fields. Um, the risk is that we will regulate with incentives in a way that will produce exactly the unintended consequence that you described, been there, done that, with opioids. Yeah, Can you manage the mic for us and take it to the next? The one thing that I would just address really quickly for your question is if you take a look at hospitals that are being built today, they're smaller, fewer beds, right? Much more ambulatory driven, much more telemedicine built into them. LAUSC in Los Angeles was like a thousand bed hospital. The new hospital was like 400 beds. You know, so they're building more outlying clinics so they can be closer to where the patients are, but the main hospitals themselves are getting smaller, and if you read Becker's hospital review these days, more hospitals are closing than opening, because I can't sustain the infrastructure that they've built with limited patient traffic that they're getting. Um, I was a loyal Kaiser customer for over a decade before I moved back to New York and I'm slogging through not such a top to bottom system. Um, and I used to work with the innovation lab there uh, in Oakland as well in the Garfield Center, which was cool that they had like software labs and then also like 
physical rooms and it was a fun place to work. Um, my question is uh, maybe starting with you around tele, telehealth and telemedicine. Excuse me one second. If you want to join us, come right up. We're having a round table. Okay. Um, have you seen examples or interest for almost like blending community coaching in with top-down medical professional coaching where, you know, if you are a diabetic in East Harlem who has gotten your condition under control in a food desert with not a lot of outdoor space to exercise, we should raise you up, right? And so have you, have you seen examples where like platforms are blending? Like if someone from the community has self-identified and showed us that they may know best because they are from that community, yeah. we want to almost like empower you, maybe even pay you to become a coach for people like you. Is that yeah, I mean, again, to pay homage to a little bit of what Kaiser is doing. If you look at any new Kaiser facility, it's built as a community center first before it's a hospital. Um, and there's wellness programs and things built into it. And if you take a look at MLK, which is in the middle of Watts in Los Angeles, you know, a community that's totally in need, um, they have built a whole ecosystem around supporting the patients and coaching them through uh, diet, wellness, exercise, and really taking an approach that really addresses, you know, social determinants of health, um, which I thought was an incredible thing. Um, and it's not just an experiment, they're actually making it work. Um, but can, is that managed through your platform where there is an algorithm that matches people to medical professionals or matches them to So peers? the answer is we haven't done it yet. It's yeah. totally possible. So if yeah. you take a look at our platform, 80% of that core video stack is, it really doesn't change. It natively integrates with VidYO, Skype for Business, Polycom, Cisco, Zoom. It's standards-based, which we think is the way it's, you know, if you took a look at it, Telemedicine 1.0 was pick up the phone, call your doc. Telemedicine 2.0, video was added, but a lot of the video that was added to WebRTC driven and it couldn't be federated. Um, so for us, it was about having an open platform that broke down silos between facilities. And by the way, inter-facility as well. If you take a look at a lot of academic medical institutions, they don't have a unified telemedicine program. Each department made their technology decision separately. And so you have a bunch of point solutions that don't talk to each other. You heard the Northwell folks kind of bring that up earlier today. I totally agree with all that, and, and I'll add one thing is you should Google San Diego 211. Uh, it's like a 911 service or a 411, except it's 211 for social services. We have over 1,200 social services scattered around San Diego Imperial Counties. There is a well-advanced initiative, probably the best in the country, um, to begin to apply an evidence-based approach to who are these 1,200 agencies, what do they do, how much value for money do you get, and how do you do a match.com for an individual with a variety of services they need post-discharge. And the way I got the medical director in San Diego excited about it was to say, um, this could really help manage our patients when they're not in the hospital. And he immediately translated that in, oh, reduced readmissions. Oh, shorter lengths of stay. I can get people, you know, turning over the beds, like turning over the tables in a restaurant. And so I don't think that this is incumbent upon the conventional medical healthcare infrastructure. And I've given talks, I gave a talk to 6,000 physicians on this at HIMSS uh, four years ago. And I gave the talk and the first question was, John, we're so busy, you know, sawing, we can't stop and sharpen our saw. How can we possibly take on these social determinants issues? And my response was, you can't. But if you don't catalyze and if you don't collaborate with these social service agencies, you're losing your profession. You're losing your Hippocratic Oath. You're losing the reason you went into medicine in the first place. And so we have a project called Social Service Resource Locator inside Kaiser Permanente to help do the match.com. And I'm 
very close to securing San Diego as our pilot site because within the organization we can do that coordination of services and augment it with, to your point, uh, and what, what uh, Jamie's doing, with video services that would be integrated across the healthcare continuum and the social determinant of health continuum in ways where we have integrated data. And so I'm very optimistic that you're gonna see in the next year or two coming out of San Diego, um, the beacon of how to do this. It hasn't been done effectively anywhere to my knowledge in the US. In third world countries it has, but not so much in the US. Where? Miami Data. Miami Data? Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll look into that. Thanks. Yeah. Well, uh, we are at time, and uh, 30 minutes flies by when you're having fun. Um, thank you so much for attending. Um, we are all pretty accessible on Twitter, LinkedIn. Uh, look us up. Um, you know, happy to collaborate. Thank you. Thank you.